So here's the deal. Biden is unacceptable. Trump is unacceptable. Even though many of us are voting for a third party, it's not very likely that that third party candidate will become president. While it's better to vote for a candidate that matches your values, in my case, I'm voting for Howie Hawkins, Green Party candidate. He matches my values much more closely than either Biden or Trump. And as I've told you before, Biden and Trump are so heinous that I couldn't vote for them in a million years anyway. So I would just not vote rather than vote for one of them. I should have said there that I would just not vote for president. I would leave the president line blank, but I would vote down ballot. But one of my dear viewers and listeners is taking it farther. He's a Bernie or Trump voter. He says that if you screw Bernie, then I'm going to vote directly for Trump. He's a true swing voter. He asked me not to reveal his identity, but he prepared some remarks and I'm going to read them at the end of the show. But before I do that, let me paint the picture of what we're up against. Let me describe in detail what Biden would bring. Then let me describe the despair of that scenario. And then let me propose a Bernie or Trumpers solution to this problem. So I'll start with David D'Amato's Hill article, Biden-Harris is the most regressive possible ticket. In his speech at the Democratic National Convention last week, presidential candidate Joe Biden said, character is on the ballot, castigating the Trump administration for its failure to tell the truth simply. In a bland, uninspiring speech, brimful with empty platitudes, light is more powerful than dark, for example, Biden promised a return to decency. Biden has long cultivated a down-to-earth, authentic persona, and it is only a persona. This is because inauthenticity, lack of any real moral courage and any real conviction beyond base power lust, is Joe Biden's defining quality. Despite his pleas for racial justice, Biden has been a deeply regressive rather than progressive figure for decades. If Biden's politics are toxic, then it may be because he never really had politics, merely adopting Washington orthodoxy without thought or conscience. And that, in practice, has meant embracing a Washington consensus of endless war, a post-911 national security state that unconstitutionally spies on and tramples the rights of Americans, and a war on drugs that has militarized the nation's police departments who have incarcerated millions including many innocents, disproportionately harming black Americans. Biden's instincts always seem to lead him in the wrong direction, the easy direction conveniently euphemized as deal-making and consensus-building. After 9-1-1, Biden praised George W. Bush as charting a course of moderation and deliberation. Where Senate candidate Barack Obama ran in 2003 on principled criticism of the Patriot Act, Joe Biden has gone around bragging that he wrote it. A reliable war hawk, it's hard to find a U.S. military intervention Joe Biden didn't like. And he has been a consistent enemy of civil liberties, both in his positions on terrorism and domestic crime. Biden's crime bill, perhaps his signature legislative accomplishment, was the accursed product of the police lobbying group, the National Association of Police Organizations, and with Biden, everything they wanted they got. 
Biden's tough-on-crime speeches at the time in the early 90s were filled with thinly-veiled racist stereotypes and callous, vengeful attitudes about criminal justice. It only stands to reason, then, that Biden's choice for VP would be a person who has boasted of being California's top cop, of wanting to see more police officers on the street, and of, for example, treating truancy as a crime and blocking the release of nonviolent second strike offenders, even as her state's prisons overflowed. Like Biden's, Harris's career as a public servant stands ignobly on the ruins of American lives, particularly black American lives she's destroyed with the outmoded policies of the war on drugs. As she runs for vice president, she seems to be without guilt or compunction, even as she shamelessly positions herself in favor of bold police reform nationwide. How can anyone who is even somewhat familiar with Harris's record take this seriously? How can they take it as anything more than the practice of electoral politics at its most cynical and opportunistic? Like her running mate, Harris is hypocritical and inauthentic happy to say or do anything to keep climbing the power ladder. Of all the disastrous pairings that could have come out of the Democratic primary season, Biden and Harris may well be the least progressive, most concerning for a growing movement of Americans seeking meaningful reform on policing, criminal justice, and prison issues. Biden and Harris embody everything people rightly hate about politics, the inauthenticity, the smiling duplicitousness, the lack of moral courage. They share a willingness to take any position to get to the top, their ugly, pitiless ambition overriding any principles they may hold. So if, as some falsely believe, that we are forced to choose between Biden or Trump, Biden-Harris versus Trump-Pence, then we easily could be faced with despair. Now, this may be a stretch for people who believe that voting for Trump under any circumstances is absolutely a horrible idea. And as I've already said, I'm not going to vote for Trump. But if you agree with Caitlin Johnstone that sometimes opposing power is less productive than yielding to hopelessness and then rising from those ashes to achieve true power, I at least was able to make some connection from her advice to what the Bernie or Trumper is proposing. So here's Kate's article. To oppose power is to meet with hopelessness, but hopelessness is an invitation to real power. To oppose power is to set yourself on a collision course with despair. You set out all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, charging full speed at the man, all set to overthrow the status quo, and then what happens? You splat headfirst into a solid steel wall. Your plans fail, your heroes capitulate, your comrades begin succumbing to propaganda. You realize that the roots of establishment power stretch far deeper than you'd initially guessed and that it has strategies in place to ensure its survival that are far more ingenious and effective than you'd ever previously imagined. One of my dear viewers commented under yesterday's video that Keaton was missing the boat because he thought that the Democratic Party is merely bungling and inefficient. And Keaton doesn't actually think that, but the point that was made was sort of valid because they really do often look like inefficient bunglers. But I agree with the comment, and I agree with Kate, that they are far more ingenious and effective than we'd ever previously imagined. 
The pre-Super Tuesday debacle is more than enough proof of that. So as Kate says, and there she is, Lady Despair in all her ego-crushing glory. And then what do you do? Perhaps you avoid the despair by pretending things aren't as bad as they seem, pretending that the corrupt establishment lackeys that are being presented to you as power-threatening rebels really are power-threatening rebels, pretending the fake decoy revolution they're stagnating your movement with is a real one. Perhaps you do as so many lifelong revolutionaries have done and refuse to give in to despair, keeping your feet planted and refusing to fall as its weight saps the fire from your eyes and makes you hard, jaded, and bitter. Perhaps you avoid the weight of despair by giving yourself a new narrative about how the fight is useless and resistance is futile, so you drop your revolutionary spirit altogether and become whatever we call hippies who become yuppies these days. Or perhaps you really give in to hopelessness, really, truly surrender to it, honestly, directly, and unreservedly. And perhaps you discover something you hadn't noticed before, a part of the equation it had never occurred to you to account for. And perhaps you learn that just as your naive hopefulness was the result of a misperception of reality, so too was your hopelessness. And perhaps it turns out that just as the impulse to fight the power was an invitation to hopelessness, hopelessness is in turn an invitation to real power. Because it might perhaps turn out that when you let go of all hope, really truly let go of it, you expect to fall. You've been holding on to hope like someone clinging to a cliff's edge. So when you let go, you expect there to be a disastrous plummet into the abyss. And perhaps you will find that the fall never comes. You let go, fully prepared to plummet, and it turns out the whole situation was an illusion. There was never anywhere to fall to. And perhaps you notice that your lungs are still taking in air that the life of the world, including your own, keeps marching on completely unimpeded, that your body is still standing, all on its own. And perhaps you discover on an experiential level that the force which powers you has never had anything to do with your hopes and your desires and your personal willpower. Perhaps you discover that it has never had anything to do with what you think of as you at all. Perhaps by relinquishing all hope and struggle and control, you find that what you're really made of has never had any use for those things anyway. That in fact, they've only ever been getting in the way. And perhaps you find out that what you really are is far more powerful than what you thought you were. That it is far more powerful than the power you were trying to fight. By letting go completely, perhaps you find that the life force which grows your hair, um and replicates your cells has far greater organizing power and spontaneous creativity than the repetitive thought patterns you'd previously been employing to fight the power. Perhaps openings in the armor of the machine are noticed in what had previously looked like a solid steel carapace. Perhaps solutions emerge to what had looked like unsolvable dilemmas. Perhaps you begin moving in ways which surprise even you because they arise from an unpatterned place of unprecedented aliveness. And perhaps others do the same. And perhaps that's how we win. Hope and hopelessness might just be an opening to a discovery of something that is far beyond them both. Something boundless. Something crackling with potentiality. 
and something the bastards never saw coming. Perhaps, perhaps not. What the hell do I know? Try it out for yourself and let go. So now I'll conclude with the argument from the Bernie or Trumper. Just wanted to drop a line sharing my own personal stance on an argument to vote against Biden-Harris and directly for Trump. He then tells me his occupation that he's done for 16 years and that he's studied human behavior and politics for slightly longer. The argument. The problem with the Dems is not that they won't get things done, it's what they are actually quite likely to get done. Biden can fulfill his decades-long fantasy of whittling down Social Security and Medicare. He has given multiple Senate speeches about his courage to tackle these issues. In one speech, he was lionizing himself because he had attempted that on five separate occasions. Having a D on his helmet would let him get this done under the cover of keeping us solvent, the, the austerity argument, in the fallout of a massive depression. This is me. I think it's interesting that people think that austerity is the answer to keeping us solvent when the opposite is true. But back to the Bernie or Trumper. If Dems won't vote with him, no worries. His fetish for working with Republicans will get its kink thoroughly satisfied as Repubs storm to further strip the safety net, having it become less reliable and less popular, leaving it more vulnerable going forward. It also removes what little taboo remains on tinkering with social safety nets, because dear old Joe is the one savaging the safety net with those adorable little Dem-themed scissors that Kamala kept in her sewing kit for just such an occasion. Let's play the play-out game. If Trump wins, he must witness the washing out of the economy with no Dems to legitimately blame in the eyes of many because he was in power the whole eight years. The pain and ongoing push from Black Lives Matter would cause his little battleship to finally capsize as the pain becomes real for nearly every American not busy yachting their way through the worst depression since the Great Depression. This also has the potential to largely devastate both the Republican and Democratic parties, leaving them in shambles and less structured and funded because both have become more untenable than useful. The pain becomes such that even people not remotely interested in politics or reality become irate and activated, bitching out their reps and senators in angry calls and awkward office visits because they have nothing else to do. After all, they aren't working and can't afford a cable package to keep up with NASCAR. This will clear a space for a third party or justice dem takeover. Not perfect, but less corporate, so it is a start as far as I am concerned. What if Biden wins? Trump doesn't disappear. He snipes Biden every step of the way. Repubs get time to whitewash their imagery and recover against their favorite foil. Some old white guy with a fetish for submitting to Republicans instead of having a dominatrix whip him for a surcharge like a normal politician. He will reach out, have his hand slapped, and repeat all the while being screamed at for being oppositional and radical and steadily drifting right. Biden further demoralizes and dismisses any progressive and working class ideals and any who might remotely support them or hope for actual change. He further proves the case that politicians, and especially Dems, don't bring change, making an entire generation less likely to hit the ballot box and more hateful of politicians and more likely to run to the next Trump who will likely be a much smarter version. 
This Trump is too klutzy and crass to truly bring nuanced fascism to our country. His spiritual successor, perhaps in the body of one Tucker Carlson, for example, would be very well served by this scenario. Or maybe Tom Cotton. I am saddened by this conclusion, but it seems like the only viable scenario is to finish the chemotherapy, not stop it, because we are nauseous and losing hair. Trump must finish his work, make everything completely untenable and broken, to awaken our fellow citizens to the fact that this isn't working, won't be working, and in fact will never work unless we raise the current system and raise a new one. Thank you for your work, name redacted, 32-year Democrat, political activist, Bernie bro, turned into a black-pilled advocate of the great reformat of our society. So there are some ideas for you to chew on. Whether or not you like this guy's position, you have to admit that there are lots and lots of people who feel the same way he does. Nobody seems to be doing the polling on this now. I wonder why. But if that number of Trump swing voters is rising, Bernie to Trump swing voters, then there will be something to account for for the Biden team. In the last go-around, the Bernie deplorables rose up and bit Hillary on the ass. It's definitely not beyond the realm of possibility that that could happen to Biden-Harris as well.